Hello, this brief talk is called George Eliot, A Very Large Brain. If I were to take George Eliot's pulse now in Britain 2011, I would say that it's beating strong. Screen adaptations of her novels, which first appeared in number in the 1980s, are still appearing. Lesser-known works such as Brother Jacob are being reprinted in new editions. And in academia, articles and books on Eliot are pouring forth. This academic interest isn't surprising. In many respects, she is an academic writer's writer. No one I know who has written on her even claims to have read everything she read. So there are always new contexts in which to place her. She read voraciously in contemporary literature, historiography, science, sociology, historical criticism of the Bible in English, French, German, Greek, Latin, Italian, Spanish and Hebrew. And yet at certain times between her death in 1880 and now, her formidable intellect has been held against her, especially when combined with the fact that she was a woman and therefore a blue stocking. During the early 20th century reaction against the Victorians, Eliot suffered by being seen as one of their arch-representatives, and her intellectualism was characterised as ponderous, ethically earnest, anti-artistic and unfeminine. Virginia Woolf's father, Leslie Stephen, wrote, Middlemarch is undoubtedly a powerful book, but to many readers it is a rather painful book, and it can hardly be called a charming book by anyone. Lord David Cecil, professor of English here in Oxford, described hers as a cautious, scholarly, painstaking talent. Though we don't anymore criticise books by women for lacking charm, I don't intend to dismiss such comments altogether. They are expressive of taste as well as analysis, but the criticism now written will also be perceived to express taste by the critics who are now children or not yet born. But I do, for the next few minutes, want to attempt a brief analysis of her intellect and see what her own attitude towards it was. Perhaps George Coombe, the phrenologist, that's an interpreter of head shapes, was onto something when he felt Eliot's head in 1851 and declared that she had great analytic power and an instinctive soundness of judgment and simply a very large brain. One obvious demonstration of this intellect is her gift for concise and incisive generalizations which flash out suddenly like jewels in the narrative fabric. The great problem of apprehending the shifting relation between passion and duty is clear to no man who is capable of apprehending it. The mill on the floss. Souls have complexions too. What will suit one will not suit another. Middlemarch. The contempt which a large-skulled person might feel for more moderately-skulled people is occasionally present in her writings. In her 1865 essay about servants, she argues that the majority of minds are no more to be controlled by strong reasons than plum pudding is to be grasped by pincers. Intellectual mediocrity is satirised in several of her characters. Not so much in Casabon, who is too serious a portrait to consistently attract amused contempt, but, for example, Mr. Vandenoot in Daniel Deronda, who, quote, 
could probably tell everything about a great philosopher or physicist except his theories or discoveries. In using her own erudition in her fiction, Henry James may have had a point when he described Romola as overladen with learning. It smells of the lamp. It tastes just perceptibly of pedantry. In that novel set in late 16th century Florence, a peddler speaks thus. It is your good fortune, young man, that I have happened to be walking in from Rovezzano this morning and turned out of my way to Mercato Vecchio to say an ave at the Badio. But Eliot's heroes and plots repeatedly reject narrowness and pedantry. In Daniel Deronda, one of the heroes studies in Hamburg and Göttingen, quote, that I might drink knowledge at all sources, and the other leaves Cambridge without finishing his degree because he wants to be rid of a merely English attitude in studies. The metaphor of breadth often appears in her writing as a positive one. Daniel has a meditative yearning after wide knowledge and advises Gwendolyn to extend the narrow round of her thought. Bardo di Bardi in Romola and Casabon in Middlemarch know their Greek and Latin manuscripts well, but are also selfish, exacting, narrow, brittle and lacking in empathy. For Eliot, one of the points of education is to make you wise connected to the German verb wissen, to know, but rather broader. She acquired the epithet the wise woman, and not in the sense of a witch doctor, in her own lifetime. The reverse of that would be to be silly, as in Silly Novels by Lady Novelists, an essay she wrote in 1856 criticising sentimentality in contemporary women's fiction. She uh, She also created Silly Ladies. Romola, Rosie, Esther, Dorothea and Gwendolyn simply haven't been well enough educated in the broadest and most profound sense of that term to avoid making mistakes, especially early in life, or in Rosie's case, to avoid being someone else's mistake. Connectedly, Eliot distrusted abstraction, whether philosophical, ethical or political. She described the German idealist tendency to prioritise concepts over facts as an attempt to poise the universe on its head. In the realm of ethics, she distrusted abstract principles divorced from particular cases. And she also perceived that egotism distorted vision and that distorted vision led to egotism. To see other people clearly for her is a precondition for and symptom of having sympathy with them. The problems of Middlemarch are nearly all caused because people do not see each other clearly. The townspeople misinterpret Lydgate's acceptance of Bullstrode's money because they do not sufficiently know Lydgate. Know Lydgate. This fusion of the worlds of is and ought of fact and value is encapsulated in the phrase moral stupidity in the narrator's comment we are all of us born in moral stupidity taking the world as an udder to feed our supreme selves so there are several characters in Eliot's fiction who are relatively uneducated but possess moral intelligence Dinah Morris the Bede brothers the older Silas Marner and all three Garths. Conversely, several of her characters have a clearer insight into other people's weaknesses, 
but into nothing else, a symptom and cause of their lack of sympathy with them. In Middlemarch, Featherstone, for example, understands perfectly that his visiting relatives are just after his money. But this understanding springs from likeness. The hero of the lifted veil has partial clairvoyant access to other people's minds and sees only the negative in them. Eliot's partner, George Henry Lewis, explained to a friend that the moral of this story is plain enough. It is only an exaggeration of the one-sided knowing of things in relation to the self, which is not whole knowledge, because tout comprendre est tout pardonner. To understand all is to forgive all. And yet, there is a sense in this disturbed, disturbing story that too much awareness of others is insupportable. I think this idea is not far divorced from that expressed in Middlemarch when the narrator famously declares, if we had a keen vision and feeling of all ordinary human life, it would be like hearing the grass grow and the squirrel's heart beat and we should die of that roar which lies on the other side of silence. As it is, the quickest of us walk about well wadded with stupidity. A certain amount of stupidity is therefore not necessarily a bad thing and it follows that a certain amount of egotism is not necessarily a bad thing either. We see this in the case of Daniel, who initially gives himself to all causes and all people and achieves very little. It is only when he has discovered that he is a Jew and decides to devote himself in a focused way to his own people that he becomes fulfilled and effective. Yet in the same novel, it is stressed that Jews have the particular role of uniting cultures. They have the peculiar task of being broad. It is therefore appropriate that the prophet Mordecai's brow is described as not high but broad, and that his intellect is qualified by the adjective emotional. Eliot's com commitment to a combination of the particular, the ethical and the emotional is not out of fashion as it was a century ago, in part perhaps because in reading the Victorians today we are no longer reacting against our immediate predecessors. There will be times in the future when, Eliot, when what Eliot has to offer is both more and less valued than it is at present. But I would argue that her work has intellectual depth and breadth aplenty to keep critics busy for the foreseeable future, and I invite you to join them. Thank you.